You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Garrett M. Graff is a journalist and historian. He's written for publications from Wired to the New York Times, served as the editor of Washingtonian and Politico magazine, and taught at Georgetown University for seven years. His books include The Threat Matrix, The FBI War in the Age of Global Terror, and The First Campaign, Globalization, the Web, and the Race for the White House. His new book is Raven Rock, the story of the government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Thank you for joining me, Garrett. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's hard to account for the things that rattle around in your brain, but a phrase that has been rattling around in my brain for 50-some years now is just a little clip from an old movie. It's George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson saying, We must not allow a mine shaft gap which is a thought that I think is at the center of this book. Yeah, so this book is the history of what are broadly known as the continuity of government plans during the Cold War and up to the present day. And what those plans really were, were the doomsday plans. They were the secret plans for everything that was going to happen during a nuclear attack and then after a nuclear attack. And both sets of those plans are fascinating windows into the way that the Cold War unfolded and the technology that was evolving through this time. And and in many ways, these plans and thinking about how nuclear war would really unfold has shaped both our modern life as well as the our modern politics and the presidency. And it, it, as you said uh, in talking about the mineshaft gap, I mean, part of what makes these plans so strange as you go back and look at them today is the idea and the understanding that we were actually very concerned about a mineshaft gap for large portions of the Cold War. And we spent years and decades and millions and then billions of dollars building these underground bunkers across the country. And Boy Scouts in the 1940s and 1950s were sent nationwide to scout caves and abandoned mines that the American population might retreat to in the event of a nuclear war. At the center of this is kind of an interesting flip-flop in that we always like to think that sometimes, or we don't like to think that we're cogs in the machine, but we are actually cogs in the cog, the continuity of government. Explain what that uh, term means. The arc of this book is the evolution of, uh, as I said, these continuity of government programs. And these are the plans that were meant to ensure throughout the Cold War that there was always someone who was going to be in charge of the U.S. military machine, our nuclear arsenal. And in, in many ways, the what we think of as the majesty of the U.S. president today 
is actually something that evolved over the course, course of the Cold War to ensure that someone somewhere in the world was always going to be available to launch nuclear weapons. And Marine One got its start as an emergency evacuation helicopter from the White House in the event of a Soviet nuclear launch. Uh, Air Force One really began uh, as uh, in part because of the need for the president to be in communication and in control of the nuclear arsenal wherever he went. And, and in fact, the very call sign Air Force One was uh, meant and employed for the first time to ensure that we always knew where the president of the United States was going to be in case of a nuclear war. You know, the founders never considered the possibility uh, that uh, any single nation could bring about the apocalypse. But they did have a really interesting idea, which is the president. And one of the things that you make clear in this book is that the president is not a person. He's an idea. It's He's like Doctor Who. He regenerates every four or eight years, depending on his popularity. Exactly. You know, this is in some ways uh, there is a physical body of the president, but then there is also almost this spiritual idea of a president. And, and you see it, uh, you know, in sort of medieval history with the, you know, with the cheer and the toast, the king is dead, long live the king, the idea that the, the monarchy always continues. Well, the presidency also continues. And where, whereas we think of the president as the person that we elect every four years on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, the presidency itself actually is this massive entity filled with literally hundreds of people that ensure that there is never a vacancy in the presidency itself. So, you know, this whole idea of this expansive presidency really grew up over the course of the Cold War as we began to contemplate both the death of the president, but also the idea that Washington itself might disappear in some sort of horrific attack or catastrophic event. And so you today have a presidency that, you know, contains obviously the president and the vice president, but also members of both houses of Congress, the Speaker of the House and the Speaker pro, the President pro tem of the U.S. Senate, and then each of the various cabinet officials. But then what most people don't think about is there is also a line of succession for each of those cabinet offices. So you've got, you know, roughly 20 people in the line of succession for the presidency, and then roughly 20 people in line for each of those posts in the order of succession for the presidency. And so you end up, when you begin to think about the uh, a catastrophic attack that wipes out Washington, you end up with this very weird scenario very quickly where, for instance, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, effectively the <laughs> top federal prosecutor for Chicago, uh, and the U.N. ambassador and the operations manager for the Department of Energy's Savannah River Operations Center outside Georgia, uh, you know, these people end up being the leaders of the United States in the wake of an attack on Washington. It It's so fascinating that the way that this is layered up, this is a future that didn't arrive all at once, but was layered 
one on top of the other. And in fact, this story has very much the feel of a shaggy dog story. It's just another, and then, and then we figured out what was driving this at the heart, or one of the things that was driving this at the heart of this book, is the speed with which war and the world itself were increasing. In World War One, none of this was a problem because you could barely, you'd have to take weeks to get a ship across the sea. But by the end of World War II, uh, things were moving much, much faster. But then even then, uh, you know, at the as the atomic age began, we were talking about, uh, you know, long-range bombers. Mm. And so by the time a bomber took off from the Soviet Union and actually reached the United States, you would have eight to ten hours worth of warning, which would be plenty of time to get officials outside of Washington. And the bombs weren't all that powerful. You know, if you could move people, uh, you know, even just a couple of miles away uh, during that first you know, decade or so of the Cold War, uh, they would likely be safe. And so part of this is also the evolution of an era uh, long forgotten today where atomic war seemed like something that would be manageable and recoverable. Um, you know, yeah, they might get a, you know, a couple bombers, maybe a dozen into the United States, but, you know, they weren't all that accurate and you might not uh, have all those uh, many bombs hit. And so, you know, we could bounce back from that. And then the scale of these weapons expanded, particularly after the invention of thermonuclear bombs, hydrogen bombs. And then the size of the arsenals uh, exploded, uh, no pun intended, uh, until we were talking about tens of thousands of weapons. And very quickly, the idea that you would ever be able to evacuate the 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 population centers of the United States, uh, particularly as ICBMs arrived, which reduced the warning time to you know just fifteen to thirty minutes. I mean that's uh, that made it nearly impossible to think about doing anything more than just whisking the president and a couple of top officials to a mountain bunker somewhere. You talk about the four phases of nuclear reality. Uh, what were those? So the first uh, was, you know, right after the end of World War One or World War Two, you have this moment when people begin to realize just how terrible atomic bombs could be. And so there's this moment of like, uh, and this, uh, you know, this all sounds sort of fanciful today, but was a very serious political idea back then where we would create a world government that would have a monopoly on the use of atomic weapons and ensure that no one country actually had access to these weapons. And this was an idea that was endorsed by leading military officials. It was endorsed by Albert Einstein, um, you know, that uh, this was something that could actually happen. The second phase of this, uh, as that became harder, was the idea that actually we should just build uh, cities differently. We should break apart our large cities and sort of spread them out uh, uh, until it was uh, impossible to really hit any one population center. 
The third, and this is this is where it begins to get very weird, was this idea that actually what we should do is just bury all of our cities. Um, and again, this these sound <laughs> crazy, but I mean, this was an idea that was endorsed by Life magazine uh, at, at one point of you know. Uh, it, the, this idea that, well, you know, sunlight isn't all that great because you have to be close to a window in order to enjoy it. But the beauty of fluorescent lighting is that you can have equal lighting anywhere in an underground facility. And then lastly, you know, uh, technology overtook all of that and got to the point where there was just uh, no chance of escaping these weapons. The, the warning time was too small. And there was no chance that we were going to be burying all of our cities. And so these plans, decade by decade, effectively shrunk to, as I said, just the idea of getting some top officials out of Washington, out of New York City, and into bunkers where they would be in a position one hoped to begin to rebuild and restart the United States after doomsday. Talk about this idea that came up very early, uh, which is the uh, ECG, the Extra Constitutional Government. Enduring Constitutional Enduring government. Constitutional Yeah, so government. this yes. is, um, so there are, there are multiple different variations of these plans. Um, mm -hmm. And without uh, driving everyone to madness with acronyms, you had your continuity of government plans, which were geared towards ensuring the executive branch leadership. Uh, then you had your continuity of operations plans, which ensured that departments and agencies could keep functioning. Then you had your continuity of the presidency, uh, which was just focused, uh, as, as we discussed, on you know this idea of always ensuring that someone occupied the office of the presidency. But then there's this incredibly secret and still largely unknown level of plans called Enduring Constitutional Government, ECG. And ECG deals with the idea of preserving the three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And these plans are still in existence. They uh, there are still top secret, uh, actually above top secret, uh, versions of these plans in the White House and other federal uh, agencies. Uh, and we sort of see them hinted at from time to time. But we don't really have any sense of what they actually say. And what it is clear from what we understand about the role that they would play today is that it's not about preserving the letter of the Constitution. It's about preserving the spirit of the Constitution. And so what that means from sort of what little we can actually glean from the records that exist and the statements that exist on this is some type of mass suspension of, for instance, habeas corpus and normal civil liberties, uh, probably the declaration of some version of martial law. But at the same time, a deeply simplified and shrunken down government decision-making process where rather than relying on, for instance, all 535 members of Congress in the House and the Senate, 
there might be a group uh, that is as small as one to four members of Congress who are empowered under these secret plans to speak for Congress in conjunction with the president during a national emergency. And uh, you, you can sort of see hints of these plans in the idea uh, that, you know, many listeners uh, will be familiar, for instance, with the idea of the designated survivor, the cabinet official who is uh, whisked away from a high profile event like the inauguration or the uh, State of the Union address uh, and sort of hidden away to make sure that if something happened during that event, there was someone ready to assume the presidency. Well, at the same time, there's always a designated survivor uh, for Congress as well, a member of Congress who is uh, squirreled away in a bunker somewhere during a high-profile event. And you, you have to ask yourself, you know, well, what, what could possibly be the reason that you would need to keep one member of Congress alive? You know, under normal circumstances, one member of Congress can't do anything. Uh, I mean, not even the Speaker of the House can accomplish that much on his own. I mean, he still needs a majority of uh, the, the House in order to move any legislation forward. Um, but under we, what we believe with these ECG, Enduring Constitutional Government, protocols, uh, one member of Congress might be all that we need in order to make decisions uh, during a, a catastrophic event. One of the things you discuss is that at one point, uh, around the time we were talking about world government, Americans, um, American legislators were talking about the idea that World War III, fight, the, the very idea of fighting World War III might itself be un-American, which <laughs> I think is maybe a discussion that is worth uh, resurrecting. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, we, we've seen actually, uh, you know, for... Uh, various reasons, a renewed interest in recent months around uh, the idea of World War III and uh, certainly the focus, uh, renewed focus on the operations of our nuclear weapons. Well, during the Cold War, the entire point of all of our nuclear command and control systems was to simplify the nuclear decision-making, you know, to strip away any checks or balances uh, until you, you could really just have the president pick up a phone and order the launch of nuclear weapons uh, against anyone at any time, anywhere in the world, uh, as quickly as possible. And that is certainly uh, something that caused a lot of concern as that warfighting doctrine settled into uh, the public consciousness during the 1950s and 60s, because that's not how war is supposed to be fought. I mean, war is supposed to be a collaborative decision between Congress and the president, that you need Congress in order to declare war. Of course, uh, under more, more modern times, we have seen the presidents take all sorts of unilateral action. And that tradition really began in the idea of thinking about nuclear war, that which would unfold so quickly and without warning 
that there was going to be no way to involve anyone in the decision making other than the president. The president would get a warning and he would have as little as 10 to 15 minutes to make a decision about, you know, who to launch weapons against and how many and what kind of targets he wanted to select. One of the things I think that was interesting, just fascinating in this book, is that uh, we look at our government, we see Washington, D.C., we see the Capitol and the White House, and we think, oh, gosh, that's it. But what has really happened since the end of World War II is a huge effort to decentralize the government because they realized that Washington, D.C. was a giant target. Absolutely. And you began to see this in some ways uh, during the Cold War itself, where some government agencies were actually moved out of the uh, out of the Washington area, um, and increasingly, a lot of government agencies like uh, the CIA uh, are in fact based in the Virginia or Maryland suburbs to try to give them a little bit of distance from Washington itself. But then uh, there's another era of this that's more modern, which is uh, certainly come into play a lot since 9-11, but actually began a little bit earlier than that, where some listeners will remember in the mid to late 1990s, there was a doomsday cult in Tokyo that attacked the subway there with sarin gas and caused uh, a handful of deaths but had they been a little bit better in deploying their uh, their chemical weapons, would have actually succeeded in killing perhaps thousands of people. And that really got U.S. planners worried. And they began to think a lot about this idea that between terrorist groups or rogue states like North Korea or Iran today, you could see a scenario where Washington itself could be attacked uh, but almost all of the rest of the country would be left untouched. And so how do you uh, build in procedures to devolve power out of Washington? Because on a daily basis, you know, on uh, almost everyone in our executive branch leadership and our congressional branch and our judicial branch live and work within just a couple of miles of the White House and Capitol Hill. And so there is a whole series of procedures today uh, where designated offices outside of Washington would take control of various aspects of U.S. government uh, decision-making in, uh, in the event that something happened to Washington. Now, there's also been some attempts over the years which have not, um, not gone anywhere but are still sort of active areas of debate about the idea of having uh, a, a more clear line of succession for the president outside of Washington itself. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, for instance, one proposal was if everyone in the presidential line of succession was killed, then including governors in descending order of population. Uh, so, uh, you know, California uh, New York and Texas would be at the top of that list. Um, and then there's even been the idea of appointing what would be known as a first secretary, 
which would be basically a president-in-waiting whose sole job would be to stay outside of Washington somewhere, uh, you know, perhaps leading some type of other government apparatus uh, elsewhere in the country, but who would just be there in case something happened to the Capitol. I mean, a lot of these plans are pretty strange as you begin to dive into them. I love the scene where their Mosler is testing their vault, and that proved to be a good gig for them. They're still with us, aren't they? So, uh, yeah, the Mosler Safe Company was this um, sort of huge uh, bank safe company that uh, had a long and storied history in Hamilton, Ohio. And then during the time when it was... Uh, during the Great Depression in the United States, it uh, turned to selling its bank vaults overseas and actually sold a number of bank vaults to Japanese banks. Well, lo and behold, uh, when American troops arrived in Hiroshima after the atomic bombing there, uh, one of them wrote back to the Mosler Safe Company and, and told them actually the only thing left standing in downtown Hiroshima was the Mosler Safe Company's banks, uh, bank vaults inside uh, the Hiroshima Japanese National Bank. And so it became sort of this weird company who uh, created uh, the bank safes and bunker safes and bunker doors for doomsday. And it built a special vault, uh, nuclear-hardened vault for the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence that is still in use today on along the National Mall in Washington. And then it built the bunker vaults uh, and bunker doors for things like the Greenbrier, uh, which was the bunker in West Virginia where, the, where Congress would have retreated during the Cold War. And as you, uh, as you mentioned, part of what made this so strange was, you know, how do you know if you're construction in your bunker is going to survive nuclear war? Well, you test them like any good Consumer Reports product. So during the 1950s, uh, many people don't know this very odd chapter of U.S. history, we built a nuclear test zone uh, just outside Nevada called the, or just outside Las Vegas called the Nevada Test Site. And we, you know, would build bunkers, we would build vaults, we would build entire forests, uh, people would bring in uh, and construct homes filled with mannequins, uh, build whole small towns, and then they would blow them up with atomic bombs. And this was, became such a regular occurrence that one of the first tourist attractions in Las Vegas in the 1950s was to go to Las Vegas, stay in a hotel, wake up early in the morning, stand on the roof of your hotel, and watch the atomic bombs go off to the north and the mushroom clouds rise into the sky. And hotels would hold these nuclear bomb parties on their rooftops uh, so that people could enjoy the visual spectacular that was a nuclear bomb. You know, it's so interesting to read about all these sites Talk about Raven Rock, the site and the title of this book. It was began in 1948. And how did you get the details of some of this stuff? How much of this stuff was still under uh, top secret clearance or secret clearance? And how did 
what kind of how did you go about uh, getting FOIAs for stuff like this? So uh, Raven Rock, uh, as you mentioned, was a uh, and and is the primary relocation bunker for the U.S. Pentagon. It's where the U.S. military would retreat in the event of a nuclear war. And it was uh, built in the 1940s and early 1950s, uh, just over the Pennsylvania border uh, from Maryland uh, in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, uh, not far from Camp David, which was part of the location uh, choice there. And it was a massive facility uh, even back then, I mean, holding thousands and thousands of people in the event of uh, a nuclear attack or an evacuation in Washington. Raven Rock still exists today. And in fact, many of these bunkers still exist and are in operation today. And, and Raven Rock is uh, today been expanded dramatically since 9-11. Uh, it, it had been sort of mothballed to a certain extent during the 1990s as the Cold War wound down. But then, uh, you know, effectively on September 11th, people walked back into it and turned on the lights and it's, they've never gone out since. And still runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it's a small city in, uh, in, in this Pennsylvania mountain, uh, about a million square feet of office space today. Uh, that's a dramatic expansion o from 9-11 over the last 15 years. Uh, you know, it's got its own dining facilities, its own barber shops, uh, its own police department, its own fire department, uh, and is, uh, you know, technically known as the Raven Rock Mountain Complex. But uh, most people in government know it by its code name, Site R. This is so fascinating. These places, as you described them, they're cities under underground. Uh, in a sense, they are in many ways uh, the realization of what a Life magazine proposed some 40, 50 years ago, but not for all of us. Not for all of us by any stretch. And this is where uh, th these plans begin to fall apart when you uh, begin to sort of poke at them a little bit. There, there was two major concerns with these plans uh, uh, over the course of the Cold War and, and even up to the present day. Uh, the first is, you know, it, uh, one that is sort of easily dismissible to a certain extent, which is, that, you know, there's not that room for that many of us. Um, you know, there would be, uh, you know, perhaps 10,000 to 15,000 government officials uh, nationwide who would be able to pile their way into some of these bunkers. Uh, and the rest of us would be left out on our own, um, which is a, another arc of this, of how the government sort of slowly abandoned the plans for uh, civilian protection over the last 40 years. But then the more sort of human element to how these plans unfolded is that there were no accommodations made for most of the Cold War for the families of most of these evacuated officials. And so there's a scene in the book where I talk about the first uh, large-scale uh, evacuation uh, drills in during the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s. Opal One. Opal One. And they 
there was sort of this very tense moment in a lot of domestic households in Washington <laughs> as wives of these cabinet officials and generals uh, realized that they would be staying at home during a nuclear war, whereas their husbands would be whisked away to these bunkers with their secretaries to, uh, to survive. And that this tension of not protecting the families uh, was something that really played out uh, throughout this. When Chief Justice Earl Warren was first handed his, uh, his evacuation instructions, he said, I don't see a pass here for Mrs. Warren. And the man who was briefing him said, that, you know, basically, that's right. There, you know, you, you are uh, one of the most important people in the country and... Uh, you know, there's only room for you. And he looked at uh, that pass and then handed it back to the man from the emergency preparedness agency and said, well, now you have room for another more important uh, person. You know, if there's no pass for Mrs. Warren, there's no need for a pass for me. And this is still very much uh, a tension that people think about uh, in, in the way that these modern plans exist. Um, you know, I spoke to one official who was part of these plans during the Obama administration, you know, for, who had a designated seat on a helicopter that was going to whisk him to safety. And he uh, he was talking about uh, how, you know, if that helicopter had ever landed on his kid's soccer field on a Saturday morning, and, you know, tried to whisk him away to be evacuated. He's like, you know, if anyone thinks I'm just going to stand there uh, or I'm just going to run onto that helicopter and leave my daughters behind, uh, you know, they're crazy. Like, I'll just stay with my family. One of the things you alluded to, uh, civil defense, which is uh, these are things that I remember from my youth. Uh, you know, the idea that if there's a ditch nearby, lie down in the ditch. <laughs> And civil defense, at first, it was it had some good intentions at first, but it was given no people, no power, but it did use a lot of propaganda. Yeah, and and the the civil defense, I mean, again, these are sort of chapters of, you know, actually relatively modern American history that are forgotten about uh, by most people today. You know, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, there was this real push to turn the homeland into a war zone. Um, you know, New York City distributed metal dog tags to all of its school children uh, so that they could be identified uh, during a nuclear attack. The Chicago school system t recommended to parents that they tattoo their child's blood type on uh, their child's body somewhere so that they would be able to be more readily identified and aided after a nuclear attack. And these plans, uh, you know, got very involved. I mean, there was a whole fallout shelter uh, uh, boom during the 1950s and 1960s. I mean, uh, ma many uh, listeners of a certain age will remember doing duck and cover drills in elementary school uh, with Bert the Turtle telling them, uh, you know, how to help save themselves from the nuclear flash and the nuclear blast. But then, 
effectively after the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis, you began to see these plans uh, waste away, that there just wasn't that much appetite to keep these plans going, and in part because it turns out to be not that uh, pleasant of a thing to think about. Um, you know, people didn't really like being reminded that this nuclear sword of Damocles was hanging over them every day. And so they, uh, the government, as these weapons got stronger, as the weapons got more prevalent, uh, the arsenals grew larger, uh, and it became harder to keep up this sort of vague sense of anxiety and fear in the American population, the uh, government effectively gave up any real effort at civil defense. And by the 1970s, uh, there was almost no real effort to protect the civilian population in the United States anymore. Uh, I think one of the things you, you talk about, too, is that the reason these plans undergo constant churn and change is because uh, anytime we come close to uh, needing them, we they break down often <laughs> early and badly. Absolutely. You know, this is the uh, this is effectively what we saw almost any time that these plans were ever activated in any real situation over the course of the Cold War. But then certainly we saw it on 9-11, which is the one day where these plans were really put into place on any sort of wide scale use. And you saw on that day and I write a lot about this in the in the chapter on 9-11 which I think is uh, just so indicative of so many of the tensions of these plans that day. This challenge between uh, preserving the continuity of the government and preserving the leadership of our elected officials, where, yes, we were able to get President George W. Bush up in the air in Air Force One, where he was safe in the sky, But he was roundly criticized throughout that day for being uh, absent from from public view. I mean, we we all wanted, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani, you know, marching right down there to ground zero to stand on the pile and swear that this was not going to go unavenged. And there was this real question of, you know, where's President Bush? And the answer was, you know, President Bush wanted to be back in Washington helping to lead the nation. And it was the military and the Secret Service that told him he couldn't, that it was his job that day to uh, to be safe and secure. Well, that's certainly uh, been a tension throughout these plans. And you saw that over the course of the Cold War during these very tense moments where Harry Truman and uh, um Harry Truman, John F. Kennedy, and actually Jimmy Carter faced these showdowns where the question was, do you evacuate at this moment or do you stay in command at the White House? And they all chose staying in command at the White House, that they thought that that public leadership role was the most important thing that they could do for the country, even though they all realized that that meant that they were likely going to be, or almost assuredly going to be, sacrificed in the opening salvo of a war. Unless they made it to kneecap and one of the many other places around the uh, around the country. And even, I never knew this, and 
Maybe that's why we read these books. Uh, the the floating White House to talk about looking glass kneecap and I'm gonna just wabwa binkop. <laughs> yes, Wabinkop. Wabinkop. The worldwide airborne national command post. Uh, and what is, as you say, sort of part of what, I mean, these, <laughs> these plans uh, and sort of this entire history, it's this very strange mix of, you know, deadly serious planning and contingency operations mixed with just sort of these wacky plans and wacky ideas that you just sort of sit there and be like, really? I had no idea. <laughs> and so uh, uh, as you're talking about it, you know, so there was this whole fleet of vehicles that we created during the course of the Cold War that were going to help lead World War III. And they included, as you say, NECAP, which was the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, which was a fleet of uh, four 747s, the President's Doomsday Planes, as they were known. Uh, these planes, by the way, still exist. They still sit alert. There is one of them sitting right now as we speak on a runway in Omaha, Nebraska, with its engines on, ready to uh, launch in 15 minutes and rendezvous with the President and lead a nuclear war. Um, beyond those planes, you had, as you mentioned, there were two special secret naval ships. I mean, full-size naval ships. One of them was actually a converted aircraft carrier, uh, the USS Wright and the USS Northampton, one of which was always off the coast of the Atlantic, an easy helicopter flight from Washington where the president could evacuate to this floating White House and be, uh, you know, a... Uh, uh, a nuclear command post for weeks or months at a time. And sort of, a you know, one of the little random facts along here uh, is the, the reporter who made famous by Watergate, uh, Bob Woodward, uh, he actually did his naval service aboard one of these ships as a nuclear emergency action officer aboard one of these floating White Houses, you know, standing station off the Atlantic coast. Well, so you had your planes, you had your your boats, you had your ships. Then there were trains. There were uh, armored trains this that would have uh, helped serve uh, as mobile command posts around the country. Then you had, uh, by the 1980s, uh, and some of these still exist today, you had tractor-trailer convoys uh, of these sort of armored, uh, electromagnetic, shielded, tractor trailers that were going to set out from key military bases across the country that presidents could be evacuated to these tractor trailer convoys or they could be run by generals. Um, and then you had uh, this whole fleet of planes known as Looking Glass, which were really America's planes of last resort. And one of these planes was kept in the air uh, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, from 1962 to the early 1990s. And one of these looking glass planes was always flying, circling above the planes somewhere. And uh, it was staffed by a small team of uh, battle staff and then uh, someone like an Air Force colonel or a one or two star general who would be, if all of the United States was destroyed, 
this person uh, flying in this looking glass plane above the earth would be able to uh, launch all of the remaining nuclear weapons uh, and then also communicate with all of the naval subs and have them launch their nuclear weapons. So it, it was sort of the this idea of always ensuring sort of multiple levels of redundancies and multiple levels of contingency plans to ensure that there was always someone somewhere who could launch nuclear weapons and uh, uh, against Russia. And turn the entire globe into a cinder of lifeless ash. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, so uh, let me let me say one thing there which I think is sort of actually interesting and strange about this is it it is yes uh, you're sort of fundamentally correct and certainly with nuclear winter uh you know there would be uh, you know devastating impacts on the United States uh and and the whole rest of the globe during any nuclear uh wide scale nuclear event however sort of part of what made these plans and part of what drove the idea of these plans was the government realizing actually how many people would still be alive even under the worst case scenario. That uh, even under the worst case scenario, you might have uh, you know, 60, 80, 100 million Americans who survive uh, the opening of a nuclear war. And so what do you do with them? You know, how do you help provide them safety and security? How do you get them food? How do you get them currency? I mean, the Federal Reserve built a bunker uh, outside Richmond, Virginia, where they kept $2 billion in cash uh, so that after a nuclear attack, we would have currency to begin to try to rebuild the economy. Now, again, sort of one of the funny details of this is in the 1970s when that $2 bill was introduced that uh, you sort of see pop up every now and again in circulation. Uh, and the American public said, you know, basically, no thanks. We don't want the $2 bill. We're happy with the one and the five. Well, what the government did was they had a lot of surplus $2 <laughs> bills. And so they put them all in a big stack and they put them in the Mount Pony bunker uh, for the Federal Reserve. So if you were one of the lucky people to survive a nuclear war, about the only currency you would have are $2 bills. <laughs> one of the things I think that is interesting that you trace, too, is a, a atomic culture from the first flyers they sent out, what, 20 million flyers about, you know, essentially how to survive the Third World War to foods and other stuff. So talk about the impact of this on culture as well. It, well, so culture, uh, for sure. And then also just the the high level of specificity of these plans. I mean, that was one of the things that really fascinated <laughs> me was, you know, the government really tried to think through every single thing that might be needed after a nuclear attack. Because part of what gets difficult is that these questions turn pretty existential. So mm -hmm. if you are trying to preserve America, well, what is America? So the government put a lot of thought into what totems of America, what artifacts of history should be saved. You know, at the National Archives, they sat down and they decided, you know, if we can only save one document, we're going to save the Declaration of Independence. And if we get it, get the chance, then our second 
uh, document is going to be the Constitution. At the Library of Congress, they decided that they were going to save Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address first, and then second, they would go with uh, with George Washington's military commission. The National Gallery sat down and ranked the paintings that it had in its galleries. And, you know, if they could only grab one painting, what would it be? And if they could only grab two paintings, what would those be? And, you know, their top painting was what they decided was the only Leonardo da Vinci painting that exists in North America that's in their collection. And then, you know, from there, you know, there was even a specially trained team of park rangers in Philadelphia whose job it was during the Cold War to evacuate the Liberty Bell in the event of a Soviet attack. And I just sort of have this mental image of these two park rangers, you know, in a pickup truck driving off into the mountains of Appalachia with the Liberty Bell sort of ringing wildly in the back of their pickup truck. And then, you know, you had the post office, which was the agency that was going to be in charge of registering the dead and figuring out who was still alive. And they have the they have these postcards, uh, these pre-printed postcards uh, that I was actually able to find one of them on eBay, uh, where you, uh, you know, once you made it to a refugee camp, you would get these postcards and you would fill out, you know, Dear Mom and Dad, I am safe in the following refugee camp, and the following family members are with me. And then you would mail the postcard, uh, you know, off to your your family, and hope that they you would be able to be reunited with them at some point. The park service again, uh, you know, these friendly neighborhood park rangers would be who was running the refugee camps because the thinking was that the nuclear attacks wouldn't really damage uh, the uh, the national parks. And so there would be this untouched, pristine, bucolic wilderness where we could set up uh, uh, these refugee camps. Uh, you know, so I'm so sorry Los Angeles got nuked, but, you know, please meet us all in Yosemite and we'll have a great camping trip. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, all of the these plans uh, sort of unfolded over the course of the Cold War. It, and have their own analogs today, which, again, is sort of something that most people don't understand. Um, so the post office today isn't going to be in charge of sending out postcards about who survived nuclear war. But they are, uh, Barack Obama designated them as the lead government agency for distributing medical countermeasures in the event of a public health pandemic or a chemical or biological weapons attack. So next time you think about what tip you should leave your friendly neighborhood postman or postwoman for the holidays, remember this could be the person who is someday showing up at your door with an Ebola vaccine. So maybe you want to be a little bit more generous in the interest of being one of the first people to get those vaccines. We've heard a lot about the nuclear football of late, which is never good news. You begin the book with a wonderfully described vision of Nixon in his final days as president, drinking, depressed on Air Force One. So tell us a little bit about the nuclear football and how Carter was hoping to that he could get rid of it, kind of. Yeah, so the nuclear football... Um, 
you know, part of what's sort of funny about so much of this is much of the lore that we all have in our public imagination doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a lot of attention a couple of weeks ago when it turned out that uh, Donald Trump had installed a big red button on his desk in the Oval Office. And everyone was like, well, like, uh, I hope that's not the one that launches the nuclear weapons. And no, it turns out to be a button that summons the White House steward to deliver him a Diet Coke. But the we sort of have had these reminders in recent months about this nuclear apparatus that surrounds the president. Um, there was this smiling photo of a guest from Mar-a-Lago with the military aide who carries, uh, as you say, the football, which is this briefcase of nuclear war plans that follows the president wherever he goes. And there is, in fact, no red button. Uh, what what there is is a, a bunch of three-ring binders in that briefcase that lay out different uh, different types of nuclear war attack plans that the president could execute. Um, one of those military aides referred to it as uh, a, a Denny's menu. I mean, it's basically a bunch of pictures and charts and you get to point to, you know, whether you want A, B or C uh, or as uh, one of these military aides joked darkly, whether you want it rare, medium rare or well done. <laughs> and then you have uh, what would happen is you, the president would sort of open up this binder, you know, choose from this list. And then, uh, as I said, there's no button. What the president would actually do would be to call uh, the nuclear command center uh, or military command center at somewhere like the Pentagon or Raven Rock or NECAP, the, that presidential doomsday plane. And he would go through this authentication procedure where he, the president carries uh, something that's uh, called the biscuit, the codenamed the biscuit, uh, which is basically uh, a sealed index card that he would break open and it has a code word uh, on it that he would read aloud to uh, whoever was on the other end of this phone. And, you know, that, that guy has a code book there himself and it, you know, he knows that, you know, the code word is, you know, such and such if it's the president and if, uh, the president is able to give that correct authentication code, then, you know, missiles away. Do you have any concept as you were like looking through all of this and, and unearthing all these details? Talk a little bit about how you got to some of these people. It's clear that you've interviewed some of these people who worked at some of these places. And also where we're looking going forward because – uh, with the new phenomena of cyber attacks, the ability to bring down power grids with no uh, um, attribution, the idea, even the concept of war is becoming very blurry and difficult to discern. Is it an act of war or did your machine just break? So there is, uh, as you say, this whole new panoply of threats that we're beginning to think about in modern times. And many of these continuity of government facilities that had been shut down during uh, the 1990s as we sort of thought that this global threat era was passing with the end of the Cold War have been reopened and Mm. expanded. And actually, there have been new facilities built uh, since 9-11. 
many of them focused on helping to respond to a widespread cyber attack or respond to something uh, like uh, a a lone nuclear uh, explosion or dirty bomb. Um, NORAD, which is one of these major bunkers in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, which is famous to anyone who has seen the Matthew Broderick, the Matthew Broderick movie War Games, uh, the NORAD bunker there was actually shut down entirely in the early 2000s and then was reopened uh, within the last couple of years to deal with a cyber attack uh, or other major event like that. Uh, and I was actually, I had the chance to be inside NORAD uh, uh, earlier this spring, and they are in the process right now of rebuilding the command center. I mean, they've stripped uh, it right down to the studs, and they are rebuilding it to focus on this new era of threats. Uh, you know, Iran, North Korea, cyber threats, uh, and sort of a lone nuclear attack that sets off um, what what's called an electromagnetic pulse. Which, it, which would fry uh, electronics over a very wide swath of the country. And so NORAD is specially hardened against an EMP attack, and it's one of the main reasons that they're trying to rebuild it and, and restart it for a new era. Did you in your reporting unearth uh, any new kind of policy with regards to the ever-increasing pace of technological change? I've got to imagine that by the time they've installed all that gear in, in, in NORAD, in the newest version of NORAD, it's going to be obsolete. Yeah, and that and that's sort of certainly something that, that's troubling with a lot of this infrastructure today is that a lot of this stuff was built during the Cold War um, and still relies on Cold War technology. I mean, there, there, there are sort of regular uh, outraged news stories about how so many of our missile silos are actually still run today off of five and a, five and a half inch floppy disks, which is something that most listeners have probably never seen in their lives uh, and, uh, and that I haven't seen since elementary school. The new book by Garrett M. Graff is Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Thank you for joining me, Garrett. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>